Well, the, I think the unfortunate thing with that is the nature of the <laughs> international order right now. <laughs> Sorry, the cops are coming for me. But... No, that's me. That's... <laughs> yeah, they just rolled on down my block. So uh, apparently what I just said is um, Trump's going to get me. Yeah. Hey, you should have expected it. You should have expected it. Never <laughs> defended liberalism in the global order. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Orientalist Express podcast. On this show, we bring together several young scholars to discuss a variety of topics related to the Middle East, American foreign policy, and international relations. Our goal is to make American foreign policy easy to understand and relevant for people who don't normally follow it too closely. I'm Nicholas Hayen, the founder of the Orientalist Express blog and website. Joining us today in the virtual studio are a few of our usual contributors. We have Stephen Howard. Drink and coffee. And Valida Azamatova. Hey, people. Be sure to check out the official Orientalist Express website at orientalistexpress.com to read more about the team. And don't forget to also view our latest post, which is a panel discussion about the future of the liberal international order. Speaking of which, we're going to continue our discussion of the liberal international order this week with a focus on what it all means for the average person. So go check out our latest podcast to learn more about what the liberal international order actually is. So now that we all know about the order and everything about it, what does it actually mean for our listeners? Why should they care? What benefits does this American-led global peace actually provide? I'll start with that. And it's, I think the number one thing that everyone always sees is uh, the globalization effect on the economy. And that's something that if you want to talk about the capitalist free trade uh, agreements. That's what the liberal international order does. It doesn't allow just the bilateral agreements, which are the hallmark of kind of a strongman country trying to, I guess, get beneficial agreements between different countries. So say uh, if the uh, United States and the United Kingdom had a bilateral trade agreement, then one would be able to kind of have influence or leverage over the other. Whereas you have these, uh, through the liberal international order, you have the kind of multilateral trade agreements, which the United States has shunned in the past couple of years now, but that allow a play, le, more level playing field for many different countries and the setting of norms for those same countries. So uh, if you take the, the TPP, that would have, I, I know everyone says, well, that would have uh, hurt American jobs and that would have... Uh, made us exploit some of these countries that are exploiting their own workers. And But when you really look at it, to be part of the TPP, a lot of these countries would actually have to improve their norms in certain regards. They'd have to improve their procedures in certain regards. And they're going to create this agreement anyways. So if the United States is involved, if the liberal international order is, order is involved, we're able to kind of address those um norms right away we're able to create a i guess a better work environment for all those other countries comparatively to what they would have had and we do get lower prices everyone complains about foreign products but that is also a symptom of global capitalism is if somebody else somewhere else can do a job better than you they're probably going to do it better than you and so we 
do have to transition our economy. And I know that means we lose a fair amount of, of uh, manufacturing jobs, but that's kind of just the way it works. We're not a labor intensive world anymore. Well, for some places we are, and those labor intensive places can do the labor intensive jobs. We are a capital intensive country and we should do capital intensive jobs. And that's higher education stuff, stuff that requires creativity, things like that. Last time we did talk about the liberal international order, and we can't deny that it's based on a certain set of principles. We talk about the belief that the rights of the individuals are primary. There's a responsibility of governments to protect those rights and that demo democratic government. And in particular, the liberal world order offers the best chance for human dignity, justice, and even freedom. And while this all sounds very optimistic and beautiful, this view is not held universally by all countries. I mean, leaders of some nations and more than a few people around the world would actually disagree with, with those values. And I think there's always been this division in how nations recognize these differences in between uh, democratic or autocratic forms and how religion and um, economic structures affect all of that. I do agree, though, some of the benefits of it are, like Stephen mentioned, are economic ones. Globalization has definitely played an important role in the world order for a long time. But with every advantage, they do have some disadvantages, and I'll go into that a little bit later. Yeah, I mean, I definitely like both the points that you guys have raised. Um, I mean, to the extent of, of uh, economic interrelation, one of the biggest benefits of that is, and it's definitely an unseen benefit, but it's kind of that theory in international relations that countries that trade with each other and trade frequently with each other typically don't go to war with each other. Then you would lose your trade advantages and all of that would essentially um, you know, be demolished. Um, and I think that that's kind of the third point that I want to bring up, which is a benefit of the international order, which is this unseen benefit of that it promotes, for the most part, it promotes peace among all the nations that are within that order. I mean, the order itself basically says, let's all have the same rough idea of what um, human rights and international norms mean, and let's all try to trade with each other as much as possible. And all of that essentially helps create that security zone where countries are less likely to try to go to war with each other. And that's, I think, one of the biggest and one of the hardest to see um, benefits of the liberal international order is that people just, well, generally speaking, countries just don't go to war with each other, at least not the way that they used to, with grand armies taking territory and trying to completely annihilate the other side. That just doesn't happen as much anymore. And part of that can be attributed to, you know, to the proliferation of nuclear weapons. But at the same time, I think that, especially among some of the smaller nations that are trying to remain within this order, um, it definitely helps prevent the furtherance of global conflict. And I, I, I agree with that to some extent, but I would question a little bit of the premise that countries that trade don't particularly always go to war together. And I know that that in, in the general case is true. But you have so many different types of conflict now that you're tr it is true that we will not physically go to war with a different country, but this competition that we are creating with other countries that we are basically in, what, 
what Trump would say trade wars with is uh, you come to the cyber sphere, the trade sphere, to the uh, the breaking of international norms. So basically, the taking of the Senkaku Islands and the taking of the uh, South China Sea, and because that is a trade area. So if you can control the trade area, then you can control the global order because all these countries want to control that order and or want to be able to trade with each other. It's so I, I don't know. I, I see it also as a negative. The interconnection between the countries basically means that if you are going to have a nexus of that place where everyone trades like the South China Sea, like the Persian Gulf, those places are going to become increasingly very much hot spots contested and everyone is going to try to take them by force or by other methods. Sure, and I mean there will always be competition among nations, but I guess wouldn't it be better that this competition take the form of more economic uh, competition or I guess you can say economic warfare to some extent. I mean isn't that better than just actually shooting your enemies? But is the creation of air defenses and blockades and the declaration of unilateral, I guess, security zones, is that really economic competition at that point? And it's so I, I think there's a fine line, and I think that countries are learning to be able to push right to that line. It, it doesn't cross directly over into fighting, but we, with a vagueness of exactly what everyone's saying. So, I mean, I, I heard a pretty good intent of this is the Americans don't always understand what Trump's saying. So how in the world are other countries supposed to understand what he is saying? And that really kind of takes effect when you get to these competitions that you're taking right to the line, blind man's bluff sort of situations, they can easily lead to a massive conflict if tensions continue to rise. And I think that honestly, the only reason why you haven't seen threats of higher conflict between China and the United States is because we've completely abandoned the South China Sea and kind of said, all right, China, you can just have it. And unless we decide or all countries decide that we're just going to let the major power have it or for the sake of their national aggrandizement, you're, you might have some of these major conflicts break out specifically because of trade. That's actually really interesting, Stephen. I actually wanted to ask a question to both of you guys based on that. So we all know that to strengthen and preserve the liberal world, world order requires the renewal of American leadership in the international system. And we all know that the role of the United States has been really critical in shaping and defending the liberal world order. So we know that when America, for example interferes in a different country, it's frowned upon. But if it steps back, sometimes it can be criticized for not stepping in uh, for that country. So I guess my question would be, what do you guys think? How would America's role be when some countries expect something from it, but then at the same time we criticize the United States for not uh, putting enough effort in the world order? I guess my response to that would be that the power that's at, you know, kind of the top of the heap is always going to get that kind of criticism no matter what the system is. So whether they're doing too much or not enough to support the liberal international order, I think is almost inevitable for the United States to have to face that question. Um, I guess 
if I were in a position to sort of influence America's um, backing of the liberal international order, I would probably say that we should, to the best extent possible, try to uphold just the idea of the order and what it actually means, rather than to get too bogged down into you know, every individual conflict, every individual little negotiation that happens, and to just step back a little bit and say, we just, we support the norms that the order represents, and mm -hmm. we're going to uphold that to the best that we possibly can, rather than try to play one side against the other and this side against that, and try to win our own individual little games to try to just look at the broader picture and to support that system. So you're basically saying, Nick, that America's commitment to uh, all these norms is only going to strengthen. It's not going to weaken over time and eventually collapse? I mean, I, I think that generally speaking, we're better off by supporting those norms as much as possible. Yeah. That's going to do more, more good than harm. Mm -hmm. um, I think what you're seeing now with this current administration is that they don't care about those norms and they don't seem to want to uphold them. And so it is already causing problems within the system itself. Yeah. I agree with a lot of what Nick said, honestly. Um, I, I will say that I don't see the United States engaging with the liberal, liberal international order as much as it has been in the past, I don't know, two decades in the future, because as uh, I guess the American public has shown, they have very little tolerance for foreign adventurism in any kind of the any sense of the word so i mean when you're talking foreign aid they're looking at that as foreign adventurism talking foreign engagements that's foreign adventurism they don't really differentiate between the two and so the united states far from being the anchor of what the liberal international order was far from being the i guess trumpeteer of what it was as well is going to kind of fall by the wayside and I think, be a trumpeteer of itself and its own goals. And I don't think that there's going to be another president just due to the American public. There will not be another president that can really take up the mantle of, I guess, leader of the free world again. I don't just don't see it happening, not with the American public. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, that's part of what this blog is supposed to do, right, is to at least educate people on what foreign aid actually means, why it's generally a good thing. Or it could sometimes be a bad thing. Yeah, but I mean, and and to our to the people who listen, you that is a good thing to reach out and to try to understand some of this other stuff, so you can differentiate between it. But I don't see the scale of that being applicable for, I guess, anyone. We have many liberals who don't want the United States to be involved more in the world. But at the same time, they do, but they don't really. You have many conservatives who don't want it involved more in the world. And for, I guess, fairly understandable reasons, I, I don't agree with them. I don't at all. But they are understandable, at least. The idea that spending this money out of the country should be better spent in the country is an understandable idea, even if it's incorrect. And that's the problem. You can't really fight an understandable idea with one that's correct because the correct one requires more nuance requires more i guess long-term thinking than the one that's just understandable yeah and i wonder if part of the problem isn't just messaging isn't just sort of rebranding that into you know what is good for the world 
is generally speaking going to be good for the United States and to try to extrapolate that. And I think some progress on that can be done, you know, going back to the economic side of things that, look, the United States is still kind of at the um, forefront of what is happening economically throughout the world. And so what is good for the United States economy, generally speaking, is going to be good for the global economy. And so part of the problem is just rebranding that into getting that message out there and saying that, yes, our position at you know, the head of the liberal international order is a good thing for us, not just because it benefits other nations, but because it also benefits the United States and it benefits the average citizen. I definitely agree with both of you guys. I think that a new foundation for an effective U.S. foreign policy for a new international environment needs to be established. But at the same time, I think that we should all recognize that the United States also faces limitations in what it can do. I think that the emphasis must be on taking advantages of American advantages, comparative advantages in certain key, key areas, basically in what the United States does best and in a way what it reflects those around the world and what the world actually needs from America and how it can help. So, yeah, just going off from both of you guys, that was the key points I made. I, I do agree with that. And I just, it's it's really hard. And this goes back to your original point in the question when the United States is criticized for doing too much and too little at the same time. And that's going to happen kind of no matter where the United States is in that spectrum. And it's really hard for a power as it sounds hubristic, but it's, it's really not at this point a power as strong as the United States or as China to withdraw from the world unless expectations are that it will be withdrawing from the world. So China has very low expectations of what other countries expect it to do. No one expects China to go out there and trumpet the uh, rights of the humans around the world and or to stop genocides from happening in different countries because that's just not what people expect from them. But that is what is expected in the United States. I just don't know if because that pushes us out to do different things to it we are expected to intervene in a conflict in sudan and because we intervene in the conflict of sudan we become involved in sudan because we become involved in sudan we lose soldiers in sudan because we lose soldiers in sudan the american public reflects upon that and says we shouldn't have ever been involved in sudan and it, it's just kind of a cycle of you push out but domestic public's always going to want to push back because they don't really see the value in helping the people of Sudan. Mm -hmm. And maybe part of that is just because the United States has gone so far to that point of um, withholding the human rights aspect of the liberal international order, sometimes even at the expense of highlighting the economic benefits. So I would say that, yeah, while China's um, expectations of human rights are obviously very low, their expectations, expectations of economic proliferation is actually really high. And so maybe the United States should take a page from that and say, look, by being at the forefront of these multilateral trade agreements that generally lower prices around the world and help the average consumer around the world and in the United States, that that is how we try to uphold the order more so than trying to focus solely upon human rights. Because as you said, that leads to a very slippery slope of now we have to intervene 
and we have to condemn our sometimes even our allies because they do something that honestly from their calculations they have no choice but to do yeah i think you're completely right nick i think the ability to just recognize and understand of where the other country is coming from and just knowing that they have different perspectives on things than the united states has is definitely a key component and just surviving in this world and upholding that liberal international order and i think for example one of the problems as to why the relationship between the united states and russia have gone down is exactly because of that misunderstanding of the environment the culture and um, just the overall perspective of where russia is coming from and where the united states is coming from yeah i mean for one instance say like in saudi arabia i mean sure we all want to think that they could just overnight say women can drive women can vote women can do everything um but the political reality of it is that they just can't even if they wanted to they couldn't just do that overnight they would lose the entire support of the clerical establishment which would then probably call for the overthrow of of the government so as much as we might want to tell them you have to do it this way sometimes they just can't even if they really wanted to successful societies require more than just the formal institutions of democracy they also depend on that deep commitment of values in a society especially tolerance just because a a country will hold free and fair elections and form political parties doesn't mean that it will produce a genuinely liberal order in one night or the groups in that society will embrace those liberal norms in you know one night overnight because many people in different countries they care more about national identities and then historical enmities and territorial symbols or tradition and culture uh, that is how they define their country. They care about those stuff more than freedom, as liberals define it. And that's why we have these different countries with various different perspectives. And I think the answer as to how to uphold the liberal international order is to just recognize and understand those perspectives. <laughs> So we've pretty well covered the benefits of the system, and we've even talked about some of the disadvantages a little bit, but there are definitely some downsides as well. The president has often criticized the order by pointing out seemingly unfair trade deals, shuttered factories throughout the Midwest and other areas. So I guess the question is, does he have a point? In what ways has the order actually hurt the average American, and in what ways could this be improved? There are a lot of negatives that are stem from the immediate impacts of the globalization order you talk about nafta and the immediate economic impacts of a lot of the people losing jobs in the united states and i mean, there's no saying that they don't there a lot of jobs carrier is going to move to a different country it's going to move to mexico because those jobs are more efficiently done in mexico and if you get rid of nafta maybe that doesn't happen if you get rid of globalization maybe that doesn't happen but in that I don't know. I have a hard time kind of uh, attacking the order from an economic sense because I do believe in the long-term benefits are greatly outweigh the short-term benefits. And the problem is that individuals are going to be harmed because to help 
75% of the United States, 25% may need to go back a little bit. And that's, it's unfortunate because, especially in the United States, that 75% that benefits doesn't want to give part of their benefits back to 25%, which took that brunt of them, brunt of the impact for them. So in the United States, we want to be able to change all these uh, things to high-tech industry, and we want more automation. But in the same sense, we don't want to have any of that economic benefit stemming from the people who get the automation, the people who own the capital, back to the people who just lost their jobs because of that. And I think that is the major problem in globalization, is that a lot of the benefits just aren't shared after they actually accrue. And the people who are hurt are hurt disproportionately because of that. Yeah, and I definitely agree from an economic standpoint, but I guess there's there's just two issues I find with um, trying to criticize the liberal international order from an economic standpoint. And that's one, that globalism just isn't going to go away, no matter what you do, unless every single country adopts a completely protectionist type of rhetoric, which um, would be extremely concerning and would more than likely lead to some kind of global armed conflict, at least among a few states. But the other problem that I see is that I don't necessarily see it as a failure of globalization. I see it as a failure of the federal government or of some government to uh, compensate for those shortcomings of the international order. So rather than be upset that a factory is leaving the country, be upset that the government sat there and said, okay, well, that's too bad for you. I guess here's an unemployment check, go find a new job. Instead, the government should be stepping in and saying, look, we know that you want to be productive, you want to work, so let's try to find you a better job. Let's try to find you some type of replacement, and let's train you and pay for it to train you to help get that new job and to do what you want to do. So uh, what I will say is that there is a defect in the global international order economically in terms of the open border systems that it creates. So you create free trade systems or systems of open capital. So capital can cross borders very easily one way or the other. But to the, to the large extent, except for in the European Union, which, I mean, European Union is having its own problems, there isn't really a labor transfer uh, policy for between borders. So to some extent, yeah, you can move between countries uh, and work in a different country and go back to your own country to kind of substitute for the late uh, for the um, capital going across different borders. But to a large extent, many of these countries, many of the countries around the world, any even the United States has major, major problems allowing large amounts of workers to come in or go out of its borders for fear of harming it economically, which if you're talking about a global economic order on the scale of kind of capitalism, which is what the liberal international order is based off of, you can't just have free trade. You have to have open borders in terms of allowing people to work in your country and allowing your people to work in a different country. And you have to allow migrants to be able to come into your country to do many different jobs that they might be pay- they might be better at, they might be better suited for, who knows. But I, I think that is a major defect. 
Well, I think, Stephen, the, the issue of that is that um, a lot of domestic um, people, for example, when I was studying TPP, the main people who were against it were farmers and, you know, people in agricultural sectors. And uh, while I do agree that opening borders would definitely help us, help America economically, um, the people that do come here would not necessarily go into farming or agriculture. You know, we can't really um, think that they would automatically go in that sector, which is why the farmers and the people in hard labor were against all of the opening borders and the TPP. But speaking of TPP, I also read today that apparently Japan is moving on without America and um, they've actually gathered on yeah, Saturday. Yeah, I don't know if you guys read about it, but it's pretty interesting. They've kind of moved on without America. <laughs> and that kind of also, sorry, that also kind of gets to the point of if if we don't try to shepherd these TPPs through and other international multilateral agreements through, it's not that they're not going to happen. They're just going to happen without us and yeah. without any of what we say in there. And that's just going to hurt us disproportionately. And it's going to hurt all those people that were going to be hurt from uh, the enacting of the TPP. They're going to be hurt even worse because now they're not going to see any benefits from the TPP. Exactly. We essentially lose a lot more by not being at the table than by being at the table and making a less than ideal deal. So I guess from a... Um, I mean, we've covered the economic section a little bit, but I guess from like a human rights standpoint or even a security standpoint, I think there's um, probably some even more concrete disadvantages that we could point out. And I think we've even pointed out a few of them already. Yeah, you have dis- you do have some problems on the security side with globalization. I mean, you have resentment built up in different places because every country is ever present in other countries and... So you can decry Western influence in the Middle East because even if the United States wasn't there, which I mean, look at Iran during 1970, or, or, yeah, Iran during the 1970s. I'm sorry, Iraq during the 1970s. I apologize. And the United States wasn't really interacting with Iraq during the 1970s, but they were still decrying Westernization and. When, the, when there's a global order and when there's globalism coming at you from every which way, the hallmark of that is going to be the strongest country and the strongest country, no matter if they're actually involved or not, are going to get the, as Valida was saying a while ago, they're going to be told, well, why are you doing this? I mean, I guess from a security standpoint, too, there is a little bit of a liability with some of the alliances that we've built up because of this system. I mean, if you're looking specifically at NATO, the alliance with Turkey is extremely problematic now because suddenly Turkey wants to just fully take advantage of that. They want to take advantage of the fact that we can only do so much to stop them from engaging in policies that the United States does not agree with. And they've even done it to the point where now we're essentially in sort of a proxy war with Turkey since they just recently... um, you know, spilled over the border into Syria to attack the Kurds that we've been backing against with the fight against ISIS. But is that really a symptom of the global international order or the liberal international order? Or is that just a symptom of bad U.S. policymaking? I think that could be a symptom of both. 
that um, if we if we agree that NATO is in some ways an extension of the international order, then those strong alliances that we've created with certain countries, if they suddenly don't want to abide by the tenets of the international order anymore, and they want to be almost hostile to the United States, what exactly could be done about that? And yes, it is a policy failure as well. So that's kind of strange to think of, and I... I... I should have probably thought of this before, but I've never really thought of NATO as an extension of the liberal international order. I've always thought of it as kind of a remnant of the Cold War, which was aimed specifically against somebody, but it wasn't actually aimed for anything. Yeah, it's just a different way of thinking about it that I just really haven't thought of it before. I mean, I think I've... uh talked about the role of how human rights in terms of different cultures do play a role in that but I think also in addition to economic and security and human rights I think we have to mention China and Russia who also are considered as a real challenge to the international order and I think they they if they were to accomplish their aims of establishing hegemony in their desired spheres of influence in particular the China the Asian region I think there would definitely be some consequences I mean I wouldn't want to rule out Russia and China out as a threat because even now if we look into the foreign the foreign policy and international relations with the two countries it's not going anywhere. To, I mean, it's not getting better. Is it getting worse? Um, I'm not sure. But it's definitely not getting better. What do you guys think? Do you, do you guys consider Russia and China as threats? I know we've discussed that in the group, but I wanted to hear your opinions as well here. Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely do see them as, uh, at the very least, a challenge, if not somewhat of an open threat to the system itself. Maybe not necessarily the entire system, but certainly with a threat to the United States as being the sole decision maker in that system. Mm -hmm. Stephen, what do you think? I think they're both definitely challenges. I, I hesitate to say that a country can fully modernize without introducing a system of strong, I guess, domestic... When I say domestic rights, I mean relative domestic rights, the rights not to be imprisoned arbitrarily, the rights to not be have your freedom or your freedom of speech repressed or stuff like that. Right now, China is able to continue on its current course because it has a long history of economic, I guess, revival behind it. The past, the past two decades for China have just been absolutely fabulous for them. But after that economic kind of windfall starts declining, when it starts kind of catching up to where the United States is in terms of per capita GDP and its growth starts leveling off, it's going to need something more substantial to keep its government afloat, especially if you're going to continue a one-party government, and that's going to be keeping the citizens happy, which is going to have to be some sort of rights. I'm not saying that has to be democratic per se, but as I was saying, freedom not to be imprisoned arbitrarily, stuff like that. Um, as for Russia, I, I, I honestly do think that Russia is a uh, authoritarian state uh, controlled by a single person in power, not similar to China's one party. It's one person in Russia, and after that one person goes out of power, you're going to have just kind of what happened after 
uh, any dictator kind of falls out of power in his country what for whatever reason a stagnation of the country militarily economically and politically because no one can measure up to that dictator going forward and that means that the country will decline and so that's where i see russia going eventually just due to the systemic nature of a single person authoritarian dictatorship yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, when it comes to China, I automatically think about the elites who only who rule the party. Of course, the majority of them are elites, and who whose main goal is to keep that power in their hands uh, over their domestic policy. And when it comes to Russia, uh, it's not surprising that the person is already ruling, and everybody acknowledges and recognizes that rule, at least from what I've heard, and uh, I mean, they, there could definitely be a Russification of Central Asian countries, I, I don't want to forecast anything, but I could definitely see that happening, of Rus like there's westernization and then there's Russification from Russia's side, and who knows where that would lead to, you know? Probably just another pseudo-cold war. <laughs> Probably, Nick. <laughs> well, I suppose things were simpler back then. Yep, you, ha you knew who were the good guys were, you knew who the bad guys were, and you knew which side you were on, or something along those lines. As long as that's what Trump keeps telling me. And that's it for this episode of the Orientalist Express podcast. I'd like to thank our guests, Stephen and Valida, for their insight and analysis, as well as our listeners and readers of the blog. Be sure to check out our website at orientalistexpress.com, like and share on our Facebook group, or tweet us at orientalistexp. Our podcast is now also available on Stitcher and iTunes, so subscribe to our RSS feed, which is hosted by Squarespace. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.